Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Something Super Spiritual. I am your host, Jeffrey Peck. And today we have a beautiful medium by the name of Karen Francis McCarthy. She is originally from Ireland, currently resides in the New York area. And she is an incredible medium. She's a tutor. She she and I have this really amazing talk about her journey. She, she shares her journey through life, coming from younger years in Catholicism to being an atheist to then discovering Zen and sitting quietly in meditation and Buddhist teaching, right? And then she had an unthinkable tragedy happen in her life where she lost her partner, he was 42 years old, to a heart attack, out of the blue. And this immediacy of this loss spurred synchronicity after synchronicity after synchronicity, leading her to spiritually awaken and recognize the true power of the soul and our ability to connect with our loved ones on the other side. And She's been a lifelong journalist, writer, um, empiricist almost, where, you know, it, if, it's, if you can't see it, taste it, touch it, it, it doesn't exist. And so this, this experience for her is just so fascinating. And how she, upon waking up, how she went to Arthur Finley College for four years and while she's doing that, she's really studying grief and the process of grief and and really trying to be the best that she can be to be able to help those of us in that need, in that moment of extreme grief as she experienced. And it's really a great conversation. I think, I think most of you will be able to relate to so much of, of her experience. And as a reminder, tomorrow's Friday, as every Friday, live stream on YouTube, something super spiritual. Tomorrow we have Cheryl Murphy with us. And Cheryl was on the show a few episodes ago talking about pets in the afterlife. And so that'll be fun. We'll be doing readings for people and having a great conversation. So on that note, thank you again so much for being here, you guys, and please enjoy. Hey there, thank you so much for listening to Something Super Spiritual. My name is Jeffrey Peck, and I am a psychic medium. If you are seeking conversation with loved ones on the other side, or discussion about spirituality, life after life, and anything in between, join me as we discuss all things spirit. We are collectively experiencing a spiritual awakening right now and recognizing that we are much, much more than we once believed. We don't die, and life doesn't end. We are eternal spiritual beings living in this crazy 3D virtual world of existence. Let's talk about it. Karen Francis McCarthy, welcome to Something Super Spiritual. I'm so happy to have you here, and I appreciate you being here to talk about your path and your journey and your book, Till Death Don't Us Part, which I love the title. 
And um, yeah, so let's let's get right into it. <laughs> so Karen, so t- uh, talk about your your journey. Has has spirituality been at the forefront of your mind since a child, or is this something that came later in life? Uh, well, I was raised in Ireland, so at the time in Ireland, and I was educated by the nuns. So I had, I'm a sort of, as a lot of people say these days, recovering Catholic. So I actually was raised Catholic, and really, by the time I was 17, and I was leaving school, I thought this just, you know, I was getting away from the nuns. It just, just doesn't, didn't work. I just, you know, I just something. It was, I didn't, wasn't connecting. Yeah. at all with it in any meaningful way other than the sort of prayers by rote, the rituals by rote. And so I kind of went off out of that and then didn't have any spiritual practice. Uh, you know, it's most 20 something year olds don't, you know, yeah. then into my 20s. Um, when I got a little older, sort of, um, I started sort of into my sort of mid 30s. I started then really feeling something is kind of missing, you know, and I ended up um, sort of finding my way into, at the time I lived in downtown Brooklyn, and I found my way into the local Zen center there, the Mountains and Rivers Order, and sat with them. And that was beautifully peaceful for me. And we had a beautiful sensei, Nairoshi, and just the simplicity of Zen really appealed to me and there's no great doctrine there's no great ritual with zen i mean it does have its rituals and it certainly has you know its dharma and certainly has its teachings but you know zen doesn't take up or a lot of the sort of real a lot of the more tibetan buddhist traditions that i've not really been able to get on board with such as sort of reincarnation and i know reincarnation in the east is a very different thing from what the West has made of it. Sure. But but in Zen, it's very, very simple. And so it was just this very peaceful and harmonious way of sort of sitting in meditation, sitting with the sanghas and getting these beautiful, simple teachings. It started making a difference in my life. But there's no theology, there's no God, there's no nothing in Zen. And so it's, you know, so it's almost like not, it's not theistic, but it's almost like more, almost humanitarian in a way. It's almost like humanism in some ways, although the humanists will not like me for saying that but you know it's just this very very simple unadorned way of being and that suited me well for quite quite some time I must say and until about 14 years ago I would say and um, when I was working on my first book which you and I've talked about before the other Irish which was part I was a political journalist let me put it that way okay I was a political journalist um, I'd always been sort of writing one way or another, and I was in Iraq. I had gone to Iraq as a war correspondent, as the stringer of the Irish Times and, and um, a couple of other newspapers in, in the States, and um, the Albany Times. And, and so I came back from there and started working on my first book, The Other Irish, which at the time was a, a sort of a cultural outreach part of the Northern Ireland peace process. So I was sort of traveling around, um, talking to people, collecting stories, writing this book. And uh, and then when it came to sort of promoting the book, the government actually backed it so that I could go to all of these places to meet people from sort of just, you know, put a hand across the aisle, so to, so to, so sure. to speak, um, to all of the people that when I was a child growing up were on the other there were the other side, you know what I mean? So yeah. as, as somebody who was raised Catholic, who came from, the, from, from Ireland, 
I was sort of going around as almost like a cultural ambassador, you know, to meeting and mingling at different festivals and talks and conferences and whatnot. And, you know, they had a lot of, they held a lot of special events in Belfast for me to come talk about the book. And it was really a way to show that we were on the cultural side of it, actually making an effort to reach across the aisle as well. So that was actually quite rewarding, quite challenging, I must oh, say. I can imagine. Work. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, just silly things, you know, like, you know, I got a phone call one morning from Ian Paisley Jr. Now, Ian Paisley Sr. had been the leader of the DUP when I was growing up. He had this booming Northern Irish voice. And my grandmother, every time he came on the TV, my grandma would say, get that man off the TV, right? And then all of a sudden, I wake up one morning and I get a phone call, I pick up the phone and it's like, hello, this is Ian Paisley Jr. Do you know who I am? <laughs> I was like, oh, believe me, I do. Wow. You know? And so it was sort of very interesting development to go from my grand, get them off the TV and, you know, and oh, the war and troubles and all of the mayhem and the killings and everything that went on to now going to visit these, being hosted at the Linen Hall in Belfast to give talks about these. So it was quite, quite, anybody who works, works within mediation, I, I don't envy them, very difficult job. But um, anything in that is quite challenging. It really pushes you to your limit. Sure. To really be able to move past all the things that you grew up with and all of the people who were affected. And but it's on this other side as well. And so being able to try to push through that and to be able to go and shake the hands and be there and be respectful and be respected by people. It's a very, very difficult job. I'm not a mediator. I was just a cultural sort of outreach, but still it was quite challenging. But but really, um, it really does challenge those preconceptions. It really does challenge um these resentments that we can mm -hmm. have from being in a conflict zone yeah. and so that was was um really an amazing experience i must say while i was writing the book i was um traveling around the south because the people from northern ireland settled the, the book was about how the people from northern ireland settled the american south so there's been loads of literature about how the irish irish showed up in Boston, Chicago, and New York, and yes. the contribution the Irish have made to America, which we all know. I mean, the Empire State Building is lit up in green on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. there wasn't much about the people from Northern Ireland, which is why this became what it was. So I was traveling around down in the Appalachians and traveling around, and, you know, it was phenomenal. It was amazing, really, because, you know, I grew up with my father listening to Johnny Cash. I'd wake up Sunday morning, Johnny Cash, you could hear it through the floorboards, you know. Yeah. But Johnny Cash, his family, the Cash family, uh, originated in Northern Ireland and so again I'm on the phone with John Carter Cash and I was like my dad is not going to believe this you know because he was such a Johnny Cash fan you know that's amazing yeah so it was a really interesting experience but while I was down there traveling around collecting these stories and talking to all these people for that first book my fiance back in New York died suddenly one afternoon of a sudden massive heart attack He's only 42. And, um, wow. and that was the major, because I had no, I had zero interest in religion. Like I said, my Zen practice was really more about just having a meditation practice and peace and harmony. And, you know, um, and not, but it was not about any sort of religion or theology or afterlife concepts or any bowing, nothing, you know? Sure. Yeah. So, um, 
all of a sudden now, and that's what I wrote about in this book, the second book I wrote, Till Death Don't Just Part, that you mentioned, is all of a sudden now I get this phone call and I was in Virginia because I was actually going over to meet a bunch of NASCAR drivers. And um, I'm sitting in Virginia and I was house sitting for this, this couple who were away. And um, I'm sitting in this massive big house in the Chesapeake Bay area. And I get this phone call. And you don't know, I ended up staying there. I didn't even come back to New York because I was just, but what started happening in this big old creepy house was floorboards start creaking, electronics started turning on, things started, all the things I talked about in the book. And, um, and of course, when you're really rational, like me, and you know, when you're a political journalist and when you have no interest in anything like that, and you sort of what you see is all there is sort sure. of attitude, um, this sort of happens. And the go-to place is, of course, I must be losing my mind, right? Yeah. But I don't feel like I'm losing my mind. But what other explanation could there be? But you know what I mean? It wasn't like there was anything else going on that you would say, oh, I'm having a breakdown. There was, but these, these situations that I talk about quite a lot, first half of that book is all about this. Um, these things kept happening. You know, I was woken up in the middle of the night, somebody sitting on the bed and, you know, you sort of jump up and you think there's an intruder, you're grabbing something to clobber them. And yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah. All this mad stuff was going on. And, um, and I thought, I'm out of my mind with grief and there must be something going on because I don't feel like I'm out of my mind, but, but clearly there is no explanation for what's going on here, you know? And strangely enough, I went out for a walk. It was very hot and I'm Irish, so we don't do well in the heat at all, you know? So <laughs> my skin doesn't do well in the heat. Nothing does well in the heat. So I go out for a walk <clears throat> when the sun, when the heat, the afternoon heat in Virginia goes down. And, um, and I sort of was wandering around as you do, kind of get lost in thought, sort of wandering the streets. And I kind of where I came to standing in front of this tiny little Catholic church on some street. It was just this little town. I didn't even know it was there. And the bell was ringing, which oddly is kind of reassuring because it's like you grow up listening to the bells twice a day. So even though you don't want to go into the church, there's something still reassuring about the familiarity mm -hmm. of that. And so I'm standing there, this big red door, I'll never forget it, and the bell's ringing. And it turned out five o'clock mass, Saturday, five o'clock mass was starting. Now, I hadn't been inside the church since I was 17 years old, do you know, except for a few. Sure. And so yeah. mm -hmm. I decided, you know, well, let me go in anyway, I'm here, let me. So I went in and I sat down and it was one of these really small little country churches with the stained glass windows and the sunshine and the rays of colored light was coming in the windows. And there was this singer there and he, I think it's sort a soprano when a man sings quite high, it's like an aria. And um, he had this, absolutely beautiful voice we're singing the ave maria oh. and i just sat there in this small really peaceful church and you could just sort of hear little, little signs of little birds and so, so i know it's all very picturesque and i just sat there and i cried oh and i'm listening to the ave maria and i'm listening to the priest and it's all familiar and, do you know what i mean oh everything about the catholic mass is familiar and it's just this beautiful atmosphere in this lovely little church so I put, after the mass, I pull myself together and the priest is saying goodbye to everybody. And, and I, I thought, I think I'll go in and see the priest and ask him 
you know, um, what does he, oh, this is going on. I think I'm out of my mind. What should I do? Because I didn't know what to do. I was on my own here. I didn't know anybody. Do you know what I mean? So I go in and I think I'm going to go in with my journalist hat on to interview this priest. Right. And so I knock on the door of the rectory and I'm I'm already with my questions and all the rest of it. And the priest opens the door and he's got such a kind face that I promptly burst into tears. Oh. And he ushered me in, sat me down, had his housekeeper make me a cup of tea, and I was sort of sitting there having a chat. And I was so instead of interviewing him, I was just blurting but you know, him blurting out, oh my gosh. And the priest of all people said, um, you know, that's, that's very, very normal. Lots of our parishioners have had those experiences. So your loved one is letting you know they're okay. And he said when his father died, they had a grandfather clock in the father's house and hadn't worked for years and years. When the father died, they'd all come, because, you know, I don't know what they do in, in, in Catholic Catholics all gather after the, the mass come back to the house for a cup of tea and sandwiches and stuff and he said they'd all come back to the house after the mass and when they were in the house the the, the grandfather clock started chiming do you know and it hadn't worked for years and years and he said it's upstairs in the box at the moment but it just started chiming just that one time and never chimed again and his mother said to him oh that's your dad letting us know he's on his way oh i thought how is a catholic priest telling me this you know and so he was like did you read your saint dominic so of course i ran home read my saint dominic and i saw this quote from saint dominic saying um uh there was actually i don't remember there was a cardinal in the vatican at the time had written an article about this that a reporter in the guardian had written about it back in the 90s when it wasn't really all, all digital so of course rather than believe this article about you know th that this cardinal in rome had said afterlife communication is possible um with our loved ones as possible, which is not Catholic mm -mm. doctrine at all. Mm -mm. Um, I can't remember the Cardinal's name now. You, you could Google, you find it. Um, I actually emailed the reporter from the Guardian just to verify that he had indeed read, written this article because it was on a third party website because back in the day, everything wasn't done. Back in the 90s, everything wasn't done. Like Yes. And he emailed me back the next morning. He said, yeah, yes, I did. I do remember that. I did write it. You know, but this was me. I need to go to the reporter at the Guardian newspaper in London and verify he did indeed write that, you know, yeah. and he did. And I looked up St. Dominic and St. Dominic had said, you know, do not grieve for me. After, uh, what was it? it was, I can't remember exactly, but do not grieve for me. I will be more help to you after I am gone than I ever was when I was alive. And I thought, how did I not know any of this within the Catholic paradigm? Oh, yeah. And that, I suppose, just for me, and you know, but these are the synchronicities that help. I'm sure if I had been Jewish, a whole different set of synchronicities yeah. would have lined up for me. But as Catholic, these are the synchronicities that were lined up for me. Yeah. That made it, I thought, well, if the Cardinal and if St. Dominic are saying these things. So I started then going, well, okay. So I started, of course, because I have to verify everything, um, doing an awful lot of research, doing an awful lot of reading, um, came across and then you know it's that sort of thing that a lot of us kind of helpful people started sort of lining up after this priest and i came across another lovely lovely man who's in the spirit world now called professor lou legrand who wrote this beautiful book called love lives on which i'm always recommending for the bereaved all about what he calls um extraordinary encounters with our loved ones in the afterlife same thing the priest was talking about and then i called up the professor had a few chats with him on the phone and it just ended up sort of opening up this door to 
it's like once you become open to the possibility that something else is going on here, then it almost intensifies. Yeah. You know? And I had been reading all about these signs that Professor Legrand had talked about and, you know, to be so selective, very, very selective about what you eat, because, as you know, there's so much rubbish yeah. out there. So I'm, I'm a, and, you know, I'm a doctorate, I'm a doctoral researcher as well. So I'm all about who's the source. Yes. <laughs> you know, yep. Always a valid source. Otherwise, don't entertain it. <laughs> and so because, you know, I'm doing my doctorate is on ghost literature, on, on spirituality, in afterlife spirituality in the 21st century. So so everything has to be sourced. It is journalist to me. So, um, but, you know, I started sort of looking into all of this and um, and the more you look into it, the more it starts to makes sense this is what's the what's that phrase Occam's razor whatever whatever once you oh, was, I think Cher, Sherlock Holmes actually said that once you eliminate this is Arthur Conan Doyle strange enough where I teach now um the Arthur Conan Doyle Center but he said you know what whatever you when once you eliminate the the uh, whatever you know once you eliminate everything whatever's left however impossible has to be the truth and that's where I arrived ultimately mm -hmm. and you know and, and a friend said to a friend of mine who, who was raised Catholic as well, she's from Ireland as well. I called her up, she's in New York, and I said, do you, have you ever heard of this? Apparently there's this thing called signs, you know, people see these little signs around. And um, uh, to, to, she was like, yeah, of course. And I said, you know, so this, and I tell her a bunch of stuff that's going on. And she says to me, do you know, you're not getting signs, you're getting burning bushes. Yeah. You know, but that's <laughs> what it took for me yeah. to make, make, to make that turn. It took an awful lot. Oh, yeah. And so, but you know, but now I, I teach it. So I went and I, I actually, but what started happening was gradually, once I accepted the possibility, what started happening was other people would pop in. So I'd be sitting with a friend and somebody, now that doesn't happen anymore, but that can kind of happen in the early days when you start to, you know. Yep. Um, and what started happening, well, those people were popping in and I was, I was getting all this information details from them and messages from them that I couldn't possibly have known because I didn't even know who they were. And so a few people encouraged me to do something with it. Now, I called my mother, who was still uh, in, in the physical form at the time, and I said to her, have you ever heard, because she's very Catholic, you know, which yeah. is also real, really a realist, you know. So, yeah. But she'd had some of these experiences herself and dismissed them. But she also reminded me that when I was a child, I had all of these experiences. Like I used to scare her because I would be having conversations with adult conversations at four or five years old oh. with people in the living room that she couldn't see, you know. Of so course. She thought, yeah, so she thought imaginary friends, but imaginary friends are usually little creatures, other kids. Yeah. Um, these were like, and she would say, who are you talking to? And I'd be like pointing up to that man. So these were adults. And I do remember seeing waking up in the middle of the night and I would just sort of see somebody at the end of the bed which as a, as a child never seemed unusual to me sure. but once I got into my teens and got into the anti everything but what I can put my hands on it sort of went away so with this like that was back oh. you know and so wow a couple of people the Edgar Casey Centre I was teaching at or was at at the time not teaching and I was sitting with a group at the a healing group the Edgar Casey Centre and one of their lovely healers there said, um, you know, we saw, overheard something going on. It's in the book. I won't go into it all now, but where a woman came and 
with you know with the whole message of winter flowers for somebody in the group in the healing group you know and afterwards we're sharing it and it was just such a moving message for this young woman who had been dumped by her boyfriend that day mm -hmm. and she was mm -hmm. really messed up and her gran had come and give her this little message and she knew exactly who it was mm -hmm. and you know so peter at the peter Golbeck there was saying you really need to do something with this do you know you really... yeah. so being this sort of very much the academic the journalist and everything i am as well I went to the Arthur Finlay College and I spent four years training and studying and got three awards there in mediumship and public speaking because I was not just going to go out flying by the seat of my pants, knowing how much harm can be done to vulnerable people. Right. You know, totally. so I, and I studied grief and bereavement counselling at the Institute of Counselling in Scotland. So I was like, I'm not going out there to interact with people who are at the worst. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Place yeah. ever. And go out there and just bungle through it. I probably yeah. wouldn't have bungled that way. But you, do you know what I mean? But so I, I went and I, I studied grief counselling at the Institute of Counselling in Scotland. And I studied for years training in mediumship and healing. To make sure that if somebody sits in front of me, I know how to. I think it's really important Agreed. that mediums are not only good mediums, that mediums cannot only understand the difference between psychic information and medium. Because as you know, a psychic can pick up everything from reading your aura. Yes. You know? So you need to be very well trained. A lot of people can't tell the difference. You need to be very well trained to know yes. that. Thankfully, at the college, I had some great tutors who really made us work, 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 yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. But I also think that mediums should have a fundamental and basic understanding of not that we're grief counseling, but understand the mechanism, the dynamics of grief, of grief counseling, because people in front of us are at the absolute oh. worst, yes. yep. worst point in their life. And we need to be able to do more than just snatch a bunch of facts we yeah, yeah. need to be able to see where they're at we need to be able to embody and make their the loved one's presence felt yeah. not just wrap up 10 facts that you could pick up from reading the article. totally yep so that was so important to me to do that right so I spent a lot of time studying and training before i would ever say okay let me try to help you you know so so uh did you know about the arthur finley college beforehand or did you research and oh, discover it and decide to know? Oh, I knew nothing about anything beforehand. I mean, I didn't even know about the, the cardinal in Rome and I'd been yeah. raised Catholic, you know, I didn't know anything about anything. No, I was, I was, it was during, I did a substantial amount of, I'm always researching. So I did a substantial amount of research. I came across the college and because I spend a lot of time in Dublin, it was a short hop over so when i was in dublin i hopped over to see and i was very fortunate because be, because my first ever mentor was glenn phenomenal glenn edwards glenn, oh i love him yeah so and it was just shortly before he died but but um he, glenn takes a very eastern style and eastern ethos to mediumship which really suited me coming out of zen you know, sure. coming from Glenn, I say. And so it really resonated with me what Glenn was talking about. So now, so I sort of embody that a lot and I bring a lot of Zen and a lot of Glenn's teachings into my own mediumship um, so that we're, it's all about presence, yeah. you know. And, um, but I also um, teach, when I'm teaching mediumship, 
bring a lot of Zen and a lot of Glynn's teachings. And I recommend, so if people, you know, when people come to take mediumship classes, they get a record reading list, you know, and they go off and read some of Glynn's book and some of Silver Birch, obviously, and a few other things. Oh, sure. um, mm -hmm. So that they are coming from a more grounded place than just sort of going around snatching bits of information like apples off a tree, which unfortunately is a lot of the way mediumship is taught. Oh, yes, yes. How long after your husband passed did you get to the Arthur Finley? How how long was that? Mm, probably, um, God, I don't really remember. It was my, we weren't actually married to my partner, but uh, I think it must have been about a year, I would say. Maybe oh. I know that, okay. yeah, I know that winter uh, after he died, oh, I was, writing, well, I was writing my first book. So I finished it, handed it into my agent and I went to Dublin basically. And I went to bed for three months. Got it. And that was the first winter. And then um, I think the next time I was home, I started popping across to the college. Yeah. Amazing. You know, I, I, I talk often about for all of us, this, it, it comes at us or within us at such different points within our lives. Some of us experience it from the crib from day one, and it's a mm -hmm. lifelong a perception connection. You know what I mean? That they, that they've lived with their entire life. Others, like myself in 2006, I became attuned to the Reiki. And the side effect for me was the ignition of all the spiritual senses, right? Um, and, and for so many others, you included, it, 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 trauma ignites all of this within yeah. us. Mm -hmm. And and it's, it's, it's just fascinating hearing about so many of our journeys and how we got here and how we, this, this ends up being our calling. And this is where we... Uh, uh, shine. It becomes our passion. This passion that has li was lying dormant for so many years, and then kablam! Mm -hmm. Suddenly, we know why we're here. You know, mm -hmm. and um, talk a little bit about that time as you were learning. You said you went to Arthur Finley for four years. What what was challenging for you during that period? What what was what did you find struggle with? Oh, God, everything. I mean, once you start, it's the same with Zen. Once you sit on the cushion, things start to arise. Yeah. You can't get away from them. And I would do sessions, which would be like week-long meditation retreats. And when you're sitting on your cushion for that long, stuff comes up, right? So when the same thing happens with mediumship, once you start opening that door, uh, and then, but I think it's really important to surrender the ego yeah. because once you open that door and just say, I know nothing and not feel you have anything to prove to anything and be okay knowing nothing. And then, and that means you've got to relinquish any kind of control. Your five-year plan is out the window. Everything is gone. You have to live in the, you have to be present in the moment. And you have to understand that control is an illusion established by the ego to try to give it a perception of purpose or goal or structure or security. It's an, it's an illusion. That right? was, can you say that again? That was beautiful. Control. Say that again. That was beautiful. Oh, I don't know if I remember. Uh, yeah. Well, it's recorded. <laughs> we can go, but we can rewind a little bit. Control is an illusion set up by the ego. Oh my gosh, yeah, that was really. But you know great. what I mean? It's, it's that's what is there to give us this sort of false sense of security. 
yeah. um, as we move through life. But it's all an illusion. And this is where a lot of Zen, this is where a lot of, you know, comes into it. Because it is an illusion. All we have is the present moment. And all we have is whatever we think we know is an atom compared to the universe. Oh, sure. What we know is so, so little. But I think it's once we are willing to be able to say, I know nothing. And to hold that space, because, you know, the minute you say that, you're running up against everybody who's saying, oh, really, let me tell you because I know everything, right? You've got to be able to hold that space and not be pressured, not be intimidated, and just be able to sit there on your cushion quite humbly saying, how can I contribute? Because I actually know nothing. Yeah. So show me how, right? Uh And starting from that sort of place of humility, I think is really important. Um, and so once you start from that place, all of the old um, little, uh, what, what would you call them? You know, things, constructs that we create to identify ourselves by fall away. And so all of those old little security blankets I have, oh, well, I'm really smart and that's a security blanket because I can be confident about my intelligence. You know, you've got yeah. to let it go. You know, my sensei, um, Koshin Sensei, who I sit with named Chelsea, um, he said there recently, and I've told him I will attribute this anytime I tell the story, is that we actually go through life like Frankensteins, you see. We piece together bits of all of our experiences and all of our reactivity to those experiences and all of our beliefs about ourselves and all of these notions we have about ourselves. And we slap ourselves together so that... We end up like a Frankenstein and all of it is attitude, experience, reactivity, attachments. That's all that is. What's beyond that Frankenstein is where we need to be coming from. And so I feel that if that's a really important thing, that's not really taught in mediumship that I feel like it's, I teach it because just because I come from a Buddhist background, but is that um, that's so important for mediumship to whatever we do, to do it with humility. Ah, oh, yes. You know? Yes. And so to, to, to circle back to your question, moving back into, it was such a relief, actually, and I wrote about this in my book. It was such a relief to get to that point of going, you know what? I know nothing. God, what a relief. Yeah. All the pressure to have answers is gone. Do you know what I mean? I'm just me. I'm just here. I'm just going to listen. The Dalai Lama says, if you listen, you'll learn something. If you speak, you repeat what you know, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to listen to learn something, right? And that was the way that went. So so what happens when you come from that place is everything starts coming up. Yes. All the attachments, all the little Frankenstein pieces, they all start coming up. You know, all the anxieties come up. And you start looking at them. And when they come up, you see, you can look at them. You can't look at them when they're whistling around in the dark, right? Right. And so when they come up, you can look at them and all those little anxieties and all those little security blankets and all those little reactions and all of this. So-and-so says something, does all those triggers we have? All of a sudden now, there they all are out in the light of day. Yeah. (laughs) And so so it sort of demands that we grow. You know, and it demands that we reach a point of exception, of acceptance for all of the nooks and crannies and little Frankenstein bits 
Right. We've got to have some self-compassion. I think if we don't learn that self-compassion, we cannot possibly have it for other people. True. Amen. So that's a very long winded answer to your question, but it's a very, I think, complex question. It, but you know? it, it, and it's true. But I, I love I love how you bridge your Eastern philosophy, your your Zen practice, your Buddhist mm. practice with your development and unfolding into mediumship. Mm. It's so and it makes so much sense. That's just it. It mm. makes so much. It makes all the sense in the world. Mm. But, you know, the, you know, Christianity and aspects of Christianity, not the way it's interpreted, but if you actually just go and just go back to some of the books in the Bible without any doctrine, dogma, political affiliations, any of those associated, and you just go back and just read it like it's just a text. Yep. Sorry to all the Christians out there. But if you just can come to it like that, I started finding an awful lot more meaning in the Gnostic Gospels, but also some of the um, canonical Gospels, that's what they're called. And then also in like the book of Daniel, you know, in some of the Psalms, there is just, there are actual references to our experiences that exists there if we want to interpret them through a different lens. Right, right. You know. And so I found that actually quite interesting, you know, not obviously not Deuteronomy or Leviticus, but I did find that uh, Corinthians, another beautiful book, there are actually, um, there are actually some of these beautiful references of humility and surrender and openness and continuity that exist within the book as a text. Mm -hmm. We can just read it as a text for ourselves and dispense and just sort of move aside what we've been told, the way we've been told to interpret it. And I do think when you boil down all religions and spiritual practices, you find that thread of commonality with all of them. Yeah, yeah. I I totally feel that with with it as well. Yeah, completely. Yeah. How has your connection with the divine changed from before when you were sitting in Zen and practicing the, the Buddhist teachings and whatnot compared to where you are today after over a decade of this work? Mm. Yeah, so there is there is a bit of tension between Zen and say spiritualism or mediumship for um, in that Zen doesn't necessarily subscribe to communication with the hereafter because for Zen, there really isn't a hereafter, right? And in, in that sense. But I think that we have to, I think in the end, we have to just try our best to be ethical and to be compassionate and to be kind and to take responsibility for our own reactivity, our own triggers, how we meet the world so that we're not bringing a bunch of garbage into the world so that we can kind of move through it. If we are peaceful inside, we'll emanate that, you know, and so... Um, so I think it demands that we do a lot of personal development as well. Um, and so I don't, I'm not really one to subscribe to only spiritualism, all the answers, only Catholicism, only Zenist, all the answers. Mm-hmm. I really do kind of myself have more of a syncretic approach to these spiritualities, you know. So Zen is enormously powerful and helpful on the, here. And then mediumship and spiritualism is enormously powerful and helpful here. And then being able to marry them together, I don't see a conflict within me of being able to 
put them together. They're right. separate. Their separate doctrines or their dharma and their doctrine obviously are, are not necessarily going to overlap. But once you get past that, it makes an awful lot of sense. It they does. really support each other. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a concept of God, the Father, mm-hmm. in the Christian way. I don't have that. I do have a concept of, and I, you know, I'm very interested in spirit in science. I was actually before I started my doctorate, I was researching a book on science and spirituality in Ireland. So I, you know, I got very much into looking at these inroads. You know, um, is that I think that we need to question and we need to listen and experience and be present and we need to really at the end of the day just be good people as the dalai lama said my yeah. religion is my, my religion is kindness kindness yes that's yes. simple you know and whether that kindness is helping somebody you know get on a bus or helping somebody to reconnect with their son who just died or whatever that kindness may be kindness is kindness yeah and should be manifested in whatever way we can to all things, to the planet, to the animals, to everything, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I had no concept of the divine before my partner died. Mm-hmm. Right? Now my concept of the divine is more of a, I don't want to say new agey about this, but more of a sort of a continuum, more of a kind of a power of a consciousness, more of a unification of a sense of oneness. Yes. You know, I don't think we can begin to fathom what a god concept is oh i think that our human brains are 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 not capable of truly grasping the full effect of the divine of unconditional love of uh, the power yeah Yeah. absolutely absolutely Mm -hmm. i you i was gonna say you must be psychic because as you were talking my next question was going to be how do you experience the divine and you 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 just answered it i think you experience the divine and being here being present being uh, being kind be contributing Mm -hmm. trying to be helpful to other people to the planet to the animals yeah that's it you know because people are always asking me oh well what does your partner tell you about the afterlife and i thought i even if you tried to tell me about the afterlife i would have absolutely no way of comprehending that because we can only understand what's within our frame of reference and non-physical non-physical reality isn't so all he can do is approximate yeah this is this is why you realize jesus spoke in parables yes (laughs) great point yeah you couldn't understand otherwise right and so so if he's giving me information that is a metaphor how accurate is it actually for what the afterlife is like but more than that I always feel if I was supposed to know what the afterlife was like, I would be there. Why would I be here if my focus was to try to learn about what's there? I am here because my focus is about something I'm supposed to be doing here. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Right. And we will be there soon enough. And then when we're there, we're like, oh, I wish I hadn't wasted all that time wondering what it was like here because now I'm here and I wasted all that time when I should have been doing some three, I should have been doing whatever I was there for. Right. right. Uh, humans. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it comes back to presence. You know, I think that 
we're so bad at being present for what whole host of reasons. And a lot of it is because I think anxiety, you know, we feel like, and the ego is always trying to anticipate the lion that could jump around the, out from around the corner oh, and eat us, right? Mm -hmm. And so we spend our whole lives forward focused the, without even necessarily realizing it becomes a permanent state of being where we're always trying to look out for the tiger that might eat yes. us. Right? And so we're never able to just be present in the moment because the ego is by its nature an anxiety and sense-making machine. And so it's always trying to keep us safe. And it feels that if it tries to anticipate every possible thing that could go wrong, it'll keep us safe. And what it does is it robs us of our life because our life only exists in this moment. It doesn't yes. exist in the past, in remorse, in resentment, you know, in nostalgia. It doesn't exist there. And it doesn't exist in a, in a future that doesn't even exist. It only exists in this moment right here, right now. So I feel that the, the challenge is to try to be present because a lot of the time we don't want to be present because our impulse is, oh, no, I better do something or I could get evicted or I better do something or lose. You know, we live in this heightened state of anxiety all the time yeah. without even realizing it. And um, I remember one time sitting on my cushion during, you know, a whole day's session retreat. And we go into, at one point, you're invited in to talk to the sensei for the called Dokusan, which is face-to-face -face teaching. And it's very short. And I went in and I sat down and, and showed her, the teacher said, so, you know, how are you doing? And I said, I've just realized in the third period sitting there that I am anxious about releasing my anxiety. Right? That's how anxious we get. I'm anxious. Actually, releasing my anxiety is making me anxious. Because if I release my anxiety, oh, God, a lion could eat me. I mean, this is how yeah. crazy it is, you yeah. know. And, it's, yeah. and that's really, I think, what we are here, to try to be present, to try to show up for people, to try to listen, to try to be present, to try to find opportunities to help and contribute. Because you know what? Everybody's in the same boat to varying degrees. It's and true. Every, everybody is suffering to various degrees. It is true. Yes. Yes. And, and, and I say so many times on the show, we are so much better together. We yes. are so much better together. If and, we can park our own Frankenstein bits at the door. Right. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I was sitting here listening to you, uh, um, all of this beautiful advice and words and experience that you've lived with and through and living in now, mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, it's just so beautiful. I I'm wondering for the listeners or the viewers watching us right now, somebody out there is going through what you went through, that unthinkable, tragic, immediate losing somebody in that way that is just you, you, blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. What would you have to say to them right now as they are in a state of shock? Yeah. yeah. And just like, yeah. what next? What do I do? That state of fear, that state of what, what, you know, just unsure what, where, where to step next. What you, you've been through. First thing I would say for people who are grieving like that is look to yourself, take care of yourself because 
what happens a lot with people who are grieving is other it makes other people very very uncomfortable because they can't make it better for you if they care about you they can't make it better for you if they don't particularly care about you they don't want to hear it and so what happens is is that people start giving grieving people advice or they and and you cannot one everybody's grief is unique so you cannot give somebody advice in grief you can only show up and be present for them and so for anybody who is grieving i would say if people start giving you advice just recognize it's that their helplessness they don't know what to do because it can be very overwhelming well you should do this you should do this and you're just and you what you need is a ben and jerry's ice cream and a hot bath right and so but what you need is for you just i would say look to the people who can show up for you without trying to tell you try without trying to organize or control your grief just the people who can just be present for you can just take a walk let you talk let you and not be trying to fix you right and that's one thing the other thing too is there is no time frame on grief we grieve in our own time so it's this misnomer that oh it's been a year you've got to be over it we never get over grief we move through it and it changes and it becomes different and we become different and we learn to live with it differently i'm not saying when you're grieving initially when you're really in that terrible terror that's not going to last forever but we don't get over it we don't go back to something we move forward to something new so if anyone says oh you need to get over it let let that go yeah what we need to be able to do is grief can actually really help us in some odd ways that we don't expect it can help season us it can help us with our humility it can help us with our compassion it can help us with our kindness when we see the next person suffering so we can actually get an awful lot from it what we don't want to be doing is being judged organized controlled criticized advised to to high heaven with it right we need to just be allowed to be now if somebody is really struggling and not getting any better because it's not that it'll go away it will just change but if somebody's really mired and i cannot still get out of bed and six months later find a support group or find a grief counselor or find other you know and be very very selective about your support group because you don't want to end up in a support group really giving the advice right so but find help find people and surround yourself and and send out send out the request can you please Put helpful people in my way so that you can find people that can support you in that so important yeah you know and then when it comes to people talking about the afterlife source 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 just because somebody's a celebrity medium or medium stores or just because they've self-published a best-selling book that means meaningless yeah you need somebody who comes from a solid educated background who has had solid training and experience who understands grief would be very very if I, if I am fearful for the vulnerability in people and some of the people and some of the way people they get exposed to and the things they get exposed to be hyper hyper selective about who you read what you take in just because somebody says something does not make it so right right i'll say that again just because somebody has an opinion does not mean it is true right 
And that's so important to learn because, you know, when people are in the situation I was in, you were in, and we're in that situation now where it's just sort of the gates have blown open, your mind is just blown, you have no idea what's going on, you're reading everything, talking to everybody, trying to understand. It also opens you up to a whole bunch of unfounded opinions. And that's where we really need to be very, very careful. Good stuff. Karen. It can be so harmful, you know. Yeah. I mean, I was on the receiving end of it myself. And oh my God, some of the things mediums told me, it, I had the benefit of then I'd be able to go get out of there and go communicate with my own loved one and get the proper answer. But people who don't have that ability can't do that. And I, and I, so I, you know, I, those people need to be very, very, very careful about who they sit in front of, sure. you know. And for somebody who wouldn't know anybody having had these experiences with people like us, hmm. well, how would you guide them to be like, if they, and uh, obviously if they're listening to us right now, they're being guided, they're being nudged and, and hearing hopefully us. We're, hopefully we're helping. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but for those that, you know, those, somebody might know somebody who is, you know, has not any of these experiences. How would mm -hmm. you, how would you guide somebody who is in, you know, in that kind of a space? You mean somebody who wants to go try to communicate with their loved ones or just somebody who's grieving? Somebody who wants to try to go yeah. communicate with loved ones? Yeah, somebody, somebody, all they know is Teresa Caputo, the Long Island medium, mm. um, you know, and she's, you know, um, so busy. She's she couldn't possibly more, more than likely be reached. Um, mm. But yeah, how would you? And some mediums charge phenomenal, phenomenal amounts of money, mm. you know? I mean, there's one me a couple of mediums are charging up to you know from over a thousand to a couple five thousand dollars a session yeah. madness so um i would say um if you know somebody who's word of mouth who's had a good experience with a medium themselves well, make sure it's a good experience because a lot of the time you see your 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 grieving person who's not mediumistic is not going to be able to tell whether somebody's working just psychically just reading them or whether they're actually communicating. So if you've got a really, really solid referral, mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, um, the college has a list of tutors, you know, any one of them, and they're all very reasonable. They're all in this, within the spiritualist, you know, uh, mm -hmm. umbrella, very reasonably priced um, in terms of what they're charging. Someone who has had training, and I know people say, oh, lots of people will argue with me about this. Oh, we don't need training, it's a natural ability. Well, do you know what? You said this yourself at the top of this. We all have disability. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to go for neurosurgery, I want a trained neurosurgeon and medical school, not somebody who's just got natural ability. <laughs> right. Put a crack open my head. Right? <laughs> yeah. There is this very strange thing, contemporary society, where there's not enough in so many, especially in this area, there's not enough emphasis or value on actual formal education and training, you know, and just because you've got a natural ability doesn't mean anything, frankly, to me, because, you know, it's like music. Everybody has some musical ability. Some people can write a concerto. I can play chopsticks, right? Yep, yep. It's the same. We're all on a spectrum. 
So I would rather somebody go to somebody who has been tried, who's been tested by a responsible body, who's been properly trained, who's got that validation. You know, unless you're in a good space, in which case, if somebody says a bunch of stuff to upset, you can probably toss it off. But who goes to a medium because they're in a good space? Right, right. So, Karen, what have been your greatest influences that have given you that edge in teaching and and doing what you do for the students today? Well, I'd say a lot of, in terms of the the afterlife work, will be Glynn and Glynn's philosophy, which is fantastic, and also a lot of Zen and all of the presence of Zen. But I also was raised by an Olympic coach, an Olympic swimming coach. And so I was raised in a high performance environment, you know. And so as I was growing up, I very much learned from my father that really what it's all about is helping people to be the best they they can be, you know. And so teaching has to be very individual. You can't just come with a blanket. Here's our curriculum. This is the this is the mark you all have to reach. Um, that you have to be able to see where the students are, where, you know, for my father, where the athlete was, see where their strengths are, see where their weaknesses are, meet them there, and then bring them forward from there. And that's how you end up being a high performance type of teacher. You know, that is really beautiful. And I, I, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. Given some experiences I have had with other teachers where I felt like I was expected to come out of this, a Stepford medium, you know, like, Mm. like, just like everybody else, just like this, you know, and, and, and it was so upsetting to me because that's, that's not me. I'm not going to come out of this being a Stepford medium, being like everybody else help Mm. me be me in, Mm. in absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So that's something I definitely learned from my father was to meet people where they're at, to play to their strengths and help them compensate for their weaknesses and then let them bring themselves because everybody's going to be different. And that's, I do feel what you learn from a high performance coach, you know, including for myself, I was very fortunate, you know, to be raised within that environment myself, but yeah, no, it's absolutely true. We're all, we're all, we're all different. We all have different strengths and people are going to, you know, it's just the nature of it. And as you say, we need to be able to work to our strengths with mediumship and we need to be able to do the best we can with where we're weaker, um, but play to our strengths so that we can actually really be helpful. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) This has been amazing with you. Oh, good. Well, I hope it's helpful. Oh, I, I think it's, I think it's so helpful. And, and I, I just, again, I'm going to say it again. I, I just, I love hearing your experience and how you grew through your experiences being, you know, originally Catholic and then Zen and, and then. No, having, originally Catholic and then atheist. And oh, then then, oh, then atheist. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to be able to, to grow in the way that you did is it's just so beautiful because they're all so different. We're all, we're all, we all come to this place in such different spaces, but yet it's all still somewhat the same. You know, it's just all a little bit of the same of different, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's just beautiful. Um, before we say goodbye, uh, I, wa- I would like you to um, let people know where they can find you. Let people know mm-hmm. where they can find your books. Um, Till Death Don't Us Part. I know you gave me the... Um, the uh, uh, the 
what is the the version that I read? First with that? One? Yeah, this where it's st stamped across the pages where it's. Yeah, that's um, till death don't just part. We sent you a pre a review copy, right? The pre yes, the review. So anyway, my I'm just saying I'm I want the original. So I'm gonna as soon as we're done here, I'm going to yeah. order the original. So that's the book. Till death don't, till death, don't just part. Don't just part. It was published by White Crow Book in the middle of COVID. And uh, but thankfully ended up being an Amazon number one hot new release and an Amazon bestseller despite COVID. Yeah. And so that was that was marvelous. And I've gotten some fantastic feedback on it as well. You know, in terms of the writing, you know, I am actually a writer. So um, it's not just it's actually written to read like you would read fiction. You know, oh, it's not yeah. just then I went to the store, then I went here, then I went there. It's actually it's actually written. Um, I've gotten, I mean, I've gotten some great reviews from New York Times bestseller and I'm uh, an Academy Award nominee, a Peabody Award winner, um, because it's actually written to uh, really draw the reader in. You know, it's not just here's a, a nonfiction account of my life, you know. Mm. Um, and so I've had loads of people email me and say, God, I picked it up and read it in one sitting. Yeah. You know, so which I feel is always a testament to the writing. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I always say, if you're going to write, I think Hemingway said it right hard about what hurts. The more honest you can get about that, the more healing it becomes for you and then more relatable it becomes for somebody else. Yeah. You know? um, so you can, you can get that. Actually, that's in loads of libraries as well. The Library of Congress, New York Public Library, the British Library. It's in the University of Oxford Library. It's also any major bookseller. You can order it online at this point. Um, and then if you go to my website, if you want a bunch of links to that. Um, and then also for anybody, I actually put together uh, based on some of the things we were talking about here, um, trying to dispel a lot of myth and misconceptions about communicating with the afterlife, just for the ordinary person who just wants to continue not to develop mediumship, but to learn how to understand how they can communicate with their own loved ones and there's so much misinformation out there that i actually designed a course which i've taught twice now and it's booked out thankfully um it's been quite helpful for people called just afterlife communication you know for people who just want to learn to con so we've just made an on-demand version of it because i'm off to, to doctorate recl reclusivity now for a few months so um we've made an on-demand version of it where all of the practices are online um all of the there's lots of talks about q a's about what's true what's not all about dispensing a lot of the myth and misconceptions to help people move through this in yeah. a healing and a healthy way Beautiful. so important yes and then there's also we've got a facebook support group for us as well so <clears throat> you can you're not just on your own you can then join the facebook group and then you can interact with other people and whatnot Perfect. so that's called afterlife communications so if you go to that's on my website as well just karen france mccarthy.com and then if anybody's interested in sort of exploring mediumship we've got um, a mediumship level one class um, that is there as an on-demand as well there's very much a combination of sort of spiritualist training and zen and Beautiful. so I've put that together, put that together too so if anyone just wants to you know just wants to be able to work on their own time just sort of explore this you know that might be good play they might be good places for them to start absolutely um and, you know, there are people out there that are feeling it and wondering, can I do this? Is this mm. something, is this, is this real for me? And, mm. and you guys, Karen is a great teacher. As you can tell, just by listening to her talk today, I mean, it's just, 
Yeah, I'm so grateful that you were here. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. So uh, I will have your website and the, the books and, and everything in the show notes so that everybody will have it on YouTube and on the podcast mm-hmm. platforms and in, in the show notes there as well. And I can send you the link for that after the afterlife class or the master classes if you want a direct link to this. Yes, well. please, please. All of it. Yeah, I think it's okay. all very helpful. Yeah. Um, the afterlife communication course is really good because it's really based on my experience from this book and the sort of the hard knocks I took. I designed this course to try to save other people from from them. And awesome. so, yeah, because I'm a firm believer that anybody can learn to communicate with their own loved ones. They just have to understand the practices, the techniques, how to work with the signs, whatnot. Um, learn developing mediumship is a different thing. It requires you're sitting in front of other people. It's a, there's a whole different level of responsibility to that. But I'm a firm believer that anybody can learn the the language to communicate with their own loved ones. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, so before we leave, I wanted to ask you what what words of wisdom would you like to leave with everybody today? I would say. Ooh, that's a big question. I would say, you know, to just be present, to understand that your life is in the moment, to understand everything else is an illusion, the anxiety is illusion, the regrets are illusions, just to be present in the moment and to help and look to ways to contribute to other people. Because what would, you know, hurt people hurt. So even when we, you know, what we want to be able to do is to understand and just meet the world with that state of compassion we want to be able to start with compassion for ourselves first beautiful beautiful thank you karen thank you everybody for being here with us again on another episode of something super spiritual please be remember to be kind be kinder than necessary because we never know what somebody might be going through next to us Be well, you guys. I'll see you all again next week. Thank you again for listening to the Something Super Spiritual Podcast. If you know someone who would enjoy this episode, please do share it with a friend. For show notes, links, and to purchase a mediumship reading, my website is somethingsuperspiritual.com. You can also easily subscribe and follow the show on your favorite app, sign up for my newsletter for bonus content, and to keep the conversation going, you can easily join the Facebook community. It's all right there at the website, somethingsuperspiritual.com. Signing off for now, namaste. Namaste.